0: And I have to admit to you that when I preach sermons, there's often this inside me that wells up. I just want this to be one of those knock-it-out-of-the-part sermons. You know, one of those that just transforms everybody instantaneously into glorified Christians. There's something about me that holds on to that results-oriented, immediate gratification of seeing people transformed. But do you understand that the Bible doesn't work that way? And discipleship doesn't work that way. It isn't just going to a uh, a G3 or a G4 or whatever. There's all these conferences nowadays. Going to one of those conferences and getting a glimpse and, oh, I'm so much better. Now I'm a Christian. Now I'm a really sanctified Christian. It doesn't work that way. Do you understand it works by over and over and over hearing the word, and slowly but surely being transformed by the word. And so as I make my way through Matthew, you say, well, sometimes you say the same thing, and it seems as though Matthew's repeating himself again. And the answer is, yeah, because we're slow learners. We need to hear it over and over and over again. And by the way, you don't need it just Sunday morning. You need Sunday school. <laughs> you need Sunday night. You need Wednesday night Bible study. Ladies, you need to come to ladies' Bible study. You need to be in small groups. You need to have one on one discipleship. You need all of that, all the time. If you're a Sunday morning only Christian, I love you. But you're not going to be transformed near as quickly and as well as you would like to. You need to hear the word a lot. I hope and pray that you don't come just because a Pastor Mike gets all fired up on Sunday morning. That's your sermon. You need the word much more than just me. Do you understand? How many of you? Honestly, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you want to grow in your walk with God? I mean, really grow. The answer is coming and hearing the Word of God taught in all the avenues you can possibly get. That's why we do what we do. We don't start new programs, we just keep doing what we're doing. We teach the Word Sunday morning. Sunday school, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Bible studies. We do it all the time. That's what we do because we know that's how you're going to be transformed. We know it's not some special magic bullet of Pastor Mike preaching a sermon on the transfiguration that's going to immediately change you into glory. It's a long process. That was all free. But I want you to get it. I want you to understand how important this is. Way too many believers think I need my once a week fix to grow in Christ. But friends, we need much more of the word. You know how I know this to be true? Because I hear the word three times a week. I preach it twice a week. And I hear it three times, four times a week. And I still have a long ways to go. I'm your pastor. I need the word all the time. So if I need it, and I'm hearing it four times a week, you need it. And it's not about legalism, beloved. I'm not trying to beat you into submitting to come here. I'm saying it because I love you. And I know you need it. Okay? So I probably cleared out some of you, and you said, well, I'm never coming back because this guy makes us want to go to church all the time, and he wants us here all the time. Yes, I do. But it's because we love you. The disciples walked with Jesus for how long? Roughly three and a half years. They heard him almost every day. Can you imagine? Wouldn't that be awesome? How many of you would love to hear the word of God speak the word of God every day for three and a half years? Let me ask you a question. Do you think they would be some pretty special men? Do you think that these guys would be, wow, these kind of guys. I want to be just like them. Do you remember what happened at the end of the three and a half years? They all did what? They ran for the hill. They denied him. They denied him even after Peter had saw all these things. What does that say to us? It says, oh... I need the Bible more than just on Sunday morning, right? I need the Word of God all the time. And I need Christ's grace to work in my heart. If if Peter had foot and mouth disease, do you think we have it too? Yeah. So over the last two weeks, we've looked at this key theme being developed in Matthew. And I have to confess to you, it's not a theme that many of us sign up for. I mean, it's not one of those that we say, okay, I want this. Because when we think of Christianity and we think of following Jesus, we often think of joy, rejoicing all the time, and everything's going to be good but the key theme that Jesus gives to his disciples is suffering then glory suffering then glory and he begins to say this and it doesn't it doesn't mesh with their thought process does it it doesn't mesh with their thought process and it doesn't mesh, mesh with the world's thought process it just goes totally contrary to what we want right none of us are saying i want suffering anybody sign up for that no. i want suffering We don't do that, do we? But Jesus says his plan, God's plan for him was for him to suffer first and then to receive glory. Right? That was his life. So do you think it's any different for his followers? No. No. a matter of fact, he says what? Pick up your cross and follow me. That's what he just said. He just told him that. Jesus had begun to tell the disciples that he was going to suffer and die and and then rise from the dead. He was calling them to pick up their cross and follow him. But to give hope for the disciples, he gave the disciples a glimpse of his glory to come. Look at verse 28, 16, 28. Remember our verse, it said, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the coming the son of man coming in his kingdom. So did they see it? Yeah, I believe they did. Three of them saw it at the transfiguration and what we see in our passage. It says in chapter 17 verse 1, then 6 days later Jesus took the three of his disciples up on a mountain and gave them a glimpse of his coming glory. In his kingdom. So our passage breaks down into two main sections. There's the glimpse of the glory of the second advent in verse 1 to 8. Yes, the advent. Y'all know these are advent candles. The deaf do this. Why do we say advent? Anybody know what the word advent means? Coming. That's right. Coming. That's right. Is advent. So we celebrate Advent, they do this Advent counter. It's pointing to what? The candles point to the coming of Christ. The first coming. His first advent. Do you understand? But there's a second advent. What's the second advent? The second coming. Which would be what? When he returns. Right? Okay, so Jesus, in chapter 17, verses 1 to 8, we see a glimpse of his second coming... While on his first coming. A glimpse of the second advent. While he's what? At his first advent. He looks forward to it. Points forward to it. Why is that important? Because it encourages them. Despite him telling them. He began to tell them over and over and over and over and over and over. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected. You need hope. It's the second advent. It's coming. It's coming. So he gives a glimpse of the second advent in the transfiguration. Then finally, he gives the second point is an explanation of these two advents are found in verses 9 to 13. So last cover, last week we covered the first point as a whole. The transfiguration was a glimpse of the glory of the second advent. And you understand that means his coming, his kingdom to come. So Jesus first... At his first advent, he gave a glimpse of his second advent. Here we see, at one point in the transfiguration, however, Peter, James, and John actually become overwhelmed with sleep. You, if you looked over in Luke chapter 9, verse 32, it talks about, in the transfiguration, what happened specifically. How many of you remember the story, the offense behind Abraham and God when he made the covenant in Genesis 15? Do you remember that? Okay, What happened to Abraham? Does anybody know? Does anybody remember? He went to sleep. That's right. Very interesting. This was a glimpse, a glimpse of God's covenant. He was making a covenant with him, but he gets sleepy. I wonder why that happens. Why does it happen that when God appears... People get sleepy. Same thing happens here in the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. I think this points to a special vision from God that they were receiving at this moment to give them a glimpse of the future glory to come. It was a time, a special glimpse. Jesus calls it in Matthew 17, 9, the vision of vision. A vision is seeing something in the future, seeing something, a special revelation. And here we have it. So Jesus gave his disciples a glimpse of the glory to come because he just told them of his coming suffering and death. So they needed encouragement. Glory to come in light of the suffering we experience at the present time. And you know, this is exactly how Paul talks, isn't it? It's the same way. If you look at Romans chapter 8, in Romans chapter 8, he talks about our sanctification process, doesn't he? In, in 6, 7, and 8, he's talking about how we're being made holy and how this happens. In chapter 6, what happens? We're new. We've died with Christ. We rise with Christ. We, we need to think right about who we are. In chapter 7, there's this struggle going on in Romans chapter 7. The struggle of what? I do what I wish I wouldn't do, but I don't do what I wish I would do. On one hand, my mind serves the law of God. and the other hand, my flesh, I sin, serve the law of sin, right? But then in chapter 8, he gives us this beautiful picture of what's going to happen and, or what has happened. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And the Spirit of God now dwells within us. And we live because of what Christ, because the Spirit lives within us, right? Everybody knows this, right? But at the end of the sanctification part, he looks forward to the glory to come. And he talks a great deal about this glory to come. And why is that important? Because we must have the glory to come in our minds so that as we struggle in this world, putting to death the flesh, and struggling with the things that are happening in the world, we have a clear focus on what's to come. The glory to come. So in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, he says, If and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's great, isn't it? That's great truth. Who we are as believers. If we're believers, we're heirs with Christ. And then he says, If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. What? Suffering, then glory. Suffering, than glory. This is this pattern. This is the pattern of the Christian walk. Do you see how deceptive the enemy is that he would say, now is prosperity. Now is your prosperity moment. No, now is my time to die to self. That's the time that I live in now. You say, well, Mike, you're getting old. I don't want to hear this about dying to self all the time. Beloved, this is the walk with Christ. And glory to come is worth it. It's worth it. Jesus showed us this. If your life is all about here and now, this message is not going to make any sense to you. If it's all about now, it's all about what you have here, then this message is not going to be fun. But Jesus gave a glimpse of his glory to come at the transfiguration so that the disciples would see past their suffering and keep going and persevere. It's interesting, one of the three dies not much more than a couple years at most from this point. James dies. He's the first martyr of the apostles. But the transfiguration is what keeps us going. The transfiguration was much more, or was much like the theophanies of the Old Testament scripture, right? It was like the glorious appearing to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was like the vision of Isaiah that Isaiah saw, right? In Isaiah 6. By the way, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord, what happens? He goes, "Woe is me," right? And then what does the Lord respond with? What does God do? God takes tongs, right? There's the the angels and they go and they touch him and say, "You're clean," right? So you're forgiven. And then what's the next thing that Isaiah says? Well, first, God says, Who will go for me? And what's Isaiah say? Send me! Send me! Okay. So, glory. Glimpse of the glory to come, who God is. This is a beautiful glimpse. I get it. I'm forgiven. You're holy. You're great. God says, Who will go for me? Isaiah says, send me, and then what's the next things out of God's voice? What does God say next? He says, you'll go, and they'll all ignore you. They'll all reject you. They'll go, and it's going to be miserable. Look over there. Come on, we got time, right? We got time. There's no rush. Let's look at it. Isaiah 6. Glimpse of glory, just like the transfiguration. Just like it. Beautiful picture here. Isaiah chapter 6. Glimpse of glory. The whole full earth is filled with the glory of God. The seraphims are there and they're saying, Holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, I'm ruined in verse 5, because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst an unclean man, people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Boy, what does that look like, by the way? What he's saying is exactly like the response of the disciples when God spoke to them at the transfiguration, isn't it? It's this humble fear, right? And then, boom, what happens next? Then one of the seraphim flew to me with the burning coal in his hands, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Okay, so I recognize that God is holy. There's a fear. There's a wow moment. God is really king of all things. A fear of my uncleanness. God says you're forgiven from the altar pointing forward to Christ's death. To atone for his sin. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. That's what Isaiah says. Then look, look what God says. He said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render The hearts of the people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Then I said, how long? How long should I keep preaching this horrible message where they ignore me? They're going to ignore me. I'm going to talk to them about you. They're going to ignore me. And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitants. Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it. And I will again be subject to burning like a timbereth and an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is a beautiful picture. What is it? Glimpse of glory and then suffering, struggle, difficulty. It hasn't changed, beloved. Our life here is not about ease and comfort. Look over at Psalm 118. Again, Psalm 118. Same concept. I saw it again as I was reading it, as, as Mark was reading it. Look at Psalm 118. When you look at Psalm 118, we think, oh, this is great. This is wonderful. This is talking about. The joy of Christ's first advent. Is it talking about the joy of first advent? First coming of Christ? Trick question. Yes and no. Look at it. Verse 19. Verse 15. The sound of the joyful shouting of salvation is in the tents of the righteous. Right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die but live. And tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Hmm. There's some suffering, isn't there? Interesting. Look, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our own eyes. Who is that? That's Jesus. We've talked about it, right? Jesus is the stone which the builders rejected. Now, look at verse 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. We sang that song. How many of you sing it? This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Right? We all sing that song? Guess what? It's not talking about his first coming. It switches to his second coming. Really? Look at it. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Oh Lord, do we, do save. Hosanna. We beseech you. Oh Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Interesting. When is this quoted? Triumphal entry as Jesus walks in. They're quoting this. The Jews are quoting this. What are they thinking? Kingdom's coming. Prosperity's coming. What happens though? He goes into the city and seven days later, six days later, he's killed. He becomes the stone which the builders rejected. The problem was, is they got it backwards. They thought, glory to come, glory to come. It's now, it's now, he's the king. But he had to die first. Had to suffer first before the prosperity could come. There is a day coming. Their prosperity will be great. And it will be a great day. But suffering has to happen first. Christ had to come. Notice: blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifices with cords to the altar, horns of the altar. Who's that? That's Jesus. He's going to be bound. You are my God, I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, beloved, get this, very important. Our lives are not about now. It's about the glory to come. You say, well, Mike, you have said this a thousand times in the last three years. So how would you do last week? How, were you like me? You were completely fixed on the glory to come the whole week. You were so fixed on the glory to come that you worried about nothing. There was no worry in any of your hearts, right? This is all sarcasm. You understand, I'm speaking with sarcasm. No, we get so distracted, don't we? We're no different than the disciples. No different. Because our hearts and our minds are not fixed on the glory to come. They're fixed on the glory that we want now. But God has given us a glimpse of the glory to come. King Jesus will reign. And our hearts and our minds must be fixed on that. So This is why Jesus took his disciples up on the mountain and pulled back the veil. And he said, let me show you my glory. And they saw his glory. And then Peter, not knowing fully what he was seeing, made another one of those great statements. Lord, it is good for us to be here. It is really good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But, we saw last week, God interrupted Peter. The father overshadowed the men with a bright cloud reminiscent of the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. And the father spoke directly to them and said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, Peter shh, shh, you're rushing ahead. He's in a glimpse of the second advent and what's he want to do? He wants to now, he wants to stay there. But he has a major major problem. What is that? He needs a savior. He needs a sacrifice. He needs somebody to die for his foot and mouth disease. Jesus is identified as the Son of God here. The loved Son of God. The one who pleases the Father. The one who the disciples are commanded to listen to. And the disciples are struck with fear, aren't they? Remember, we saw it. This is good. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their face to the ground and were terrified. What is this? This is the fear of the Lord that we all need, right? How many of you were struck to the core with the fear of God last week? No, but I even had somebody ask me, do we still call ourselves dogs? Do we still call ourselves dogs? Aren't we saints now? There's an element to that that's a legitimate question, isn't it? Are we saints? Yes, but we're also dogs. Because as long as I'm in this body of death, there's a dog element to me, right? And I need to be reminded continuously of the fear of the Lord so that I will turn to Christ and I will look to Him and say, You're my only hope. I'm a dog that's redeemed and will be redeemed. Oh, beloved, look at this. In order for the guys, the disciples, to really get it, as soon as they see the, the glory of Christ, what do they do? They fall on their faces. I was convicted by this. I was convicted because, again, I was reminded how often do I take my sin lightly? Do any of you take your sin lightly? I don't take other people's sin lightly. I have a tendency to take everybody else's sin much, much bigger than my own. Am I the only one? Hopefully not. If so, you've missed the whole point. Go back. I need more of a fear of God, don't we? How about you? I need it. The great news is is that the distinguishing mark of the God of the Bible is, is He is to be feared first, to be truly known. To really understand who God is, you must fear Him first. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of. We all need this ongoing reverential fear, don't we? We need it. It is the fear of God that prepares us to understand the true grace and love of God. And look look what happens. Look what happens in the passage. As soon as the fear overcomes them, they fall on their face. They're on the ground. They're saying, wow. Right? Peter's got it. James and John have got it. They're like Isaiah. What happens? Look at it. This is, these are some of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. Jesus came over to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Oh, there's so much here, isn't there? Think about this for a second. Stop, meditate, apply these truths. Just this great truth. What is this great truth? When they really fear God, they recognize who they are and who He is, they fall on their face, and what does Jesus do? He approaches them. He approaches them in their fear. He approaches them when they're hurting. He approaches them when they see that they are undone. Oh, we want God to approach us, don't we? How many of you want Christ to approach you? The problem is, the problem is, we want him to come as our homeboy. Instead of what? In the fear of the Lord. See, he doesn't approach us if we think much of ourselves. That's not who he approaches. He approaches the humble in heart. The ones who recognize they're sinful. If we're going to say, okay, I'm saint, but I'm a saint only because of what he did. I'm a dog. And he approaches us. You say, well, Mike, this is not good for self-esteem in the room. You are preaching totally contrary to the way the world's talking. The world tells you, feel good about yourself. But he approaches the humble in heart. And he doesn't just approach them, he touches them. The holy, beloved, well-pleasing Son touches them. This is like wonderful news, isn't it? Our Savior is the Savior who approaches us and meets us when we're humble. I think we could just meditate on this the rest of the week and we'd be just fine, wouldn't we? And he says to them, get up. Get up. Think again for a second what this means. They see the glimpse of God's kind of glory. He is fully exposed and fully revealed, and he, he says, This is my beloved Son. They get who He is, and they fall on their faces in awe. And what does Jesus say to them? Get up. Stand up. You say, Well, that's no big deal. Oh, 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 yes, it is a big deal. Why is it a big deal? Because God is holy. And how many of us are worthy to stand in the presence of God? How many of us are worthy to stand in the presence of holy God? None of us are. None of us are worthy to stand in the presence of God. How many of you have seen that song before? About this is holy ground. What is it? How's it go? You are standing in the presence of holy ground. Yeah, right. I can't sing. But you get the gist. Do You know, folks, if, if we really comprehended that and we were really there, I don't know about you. I don't know if I could utter anything. It'd be a hard time getting up off the ground. But see, the problem is is that we think get up is what we deserve. Sure, I should stand in the presence of God. No, 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 no! That I'm even next to Christ. That I even know Him is an amazing grace and a glorious good news of God. Get up. And Jesus commands them, do not be afraid. This is a picture of the gospel, isn't it? Isn't this the gospel? God is holy. We are not. There's this big separation between us and God. He's worthy of all worship. We don't do a good job of it. We're deserving of His judgment. But instead, God came to man and touched man and gave us hope. So that we don't fear and we can actually be in his presence. All of that in one beautiful picture at the transfiguration. It's beautiful, isn't it? A glimpse of the second advent to give him hope of the suffering to endure. But at the same time, he says, wait, 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 wait. In this transfiguration, glory's not yet. I'm here to help you so that you can go to glory. Beautiful picture, isn't it, of the gospel? Last week we ended with that message, fear God. Fear his son. Listen to him. The main application today is is if you fear him, then he loves you and he will show compassion to you. (laughs) That's good news, isn't it? Friends, when we humbly recognize our unworthiness, our Lord quickly displays His compassion and love towards His own. Haven't we seen this in Matthew repeatedly? The humble who come to Him and say, I know I'm not even worthy for you to step into my house. Just speak. And immediately He He heals. Or the lady that says, even the dogs get the scraps. Immediately he says what? You're forgiven. You're you're good. She's healed. The humble are blessed with grace from the Savior. We see this in Psalm 119, 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Last verse of Psalm 119. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. He's calling out to God. He's saying to God, please seek me. I'm a lost sheep. Seek me. Because I do not forget your commandments. What's the point? I blow it. I don't keep them, but I know them, and I need you to seek me. I need you to seek me. Do you understand that's everybody in this room? That's all of us. You blew it last week, didn't you? Who do you need? Him. You need Him to seek you. I got good news. He loves to tell us, get up, do not fear. I am here. Oh. Man, I love Jesus more every time I preach. How about you? Every time I share him, I think, wow, you are so good, Lord. We must see our need and humbly seek the Lord and His grace, and He meets us there. Who is able to stand in the presence of Holy God? None of us. But we humbly seek Him, and He seeks us. And He says, get up. All those who humbly seek the Savior, believe in Him. We will be in his second coming glory one day. I can't wait. How about you? As we see in Romans chapter 8, after suffering comes glory, and the glory includes final adoption and final redemption, and no more body of death. <laughs> you know a day's coming when I'm not going to sin anymore? That will be the day you want to know me. Why? Because Christ Jesus came into the world to die for this sinner. He was placed in a grave and rose from the dead, and now I'm alive. (coughs) But I'm still in this body of death, so I'm a dog saint. A sinner saint needing final redemption. And my eyes are fixed completely on the hope to come the day when I will see and be with Christ Jesus forever and ever and ever and this day won't it really even matter for I will worship the king forever and ever and ever and ever in perfect holiness and righteousness and I will share in his glory because of his good news wow right notice the disciples lifted up their eyes and they saw no one except Jesus alone the vision was over the revelation of Jesus glory was complete the disciples now would have to wait until the second advent or till their death to see the glory except for John right he saw it on in revelation 1 and saw it in the revelation so we mean move to the second main section. Look at it. The explanation. The explanation. Where am I at? There it is. The explanation of the two advents, advents. Notice it says, And they were coming down from the mountain. Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming. "...and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands." Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Here we see Jesus gives some profound information to the disciples. He unfolds some of the mysteries of the Old Testament prophecies. In this one little passage, I would say that this passage gives us a nice key for unlocking eschatology. A very nice key for unlocking eschatology. The end times. The the study of the end times. Notice Jesus starts by warning the disciples to avoid telling them, telling anyone of the vision they had witnessed. Don't tell them about the glory to come. Don't tell them about me and my kingdom glory. Don't tell them about that vision you saw. They were not allowed to talk about it until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Why? Again, I believe this was to assure the order and the timing of God's ordained plan. Much like Paul, you know, when Paul was on the boat and on the ship and it was... There was this big storm, remember? And he told them, he told the leader, the captain, hey, don't let any of those guys get off, because if they do, we'll die. But previously, he had said what? We're all going to be saved. How could he say those two things? It seems as though there's... Wait, is it human responsibility, or is it God's sovereignty? Yes. Yes, it's both. God works in both of those things in a perfect way. Here he says what? Don't tell them? because ultimately telling them of this will get out of order the things and people will see it wrong and things won't unfold the way God wants it to go. They wouldn't and couldn't get suffering and glory, suffering than glory. They couldn't get it, suffering and glory. If they told them, we saw glory, oh great, sin and prosperity, everything's going to be good. They needed to understand suffering and glory, suffering and glory, just like our lives are, suffering and glory. You say, Mike, you talk about suffering way too much. I'm sorry, dying daily, that's what we do. Disciples had a responsibility, but yet God was also sovereign, and he was working. Yet Mark's account says this. They kept them to themselves the statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. So Peter, James, and John had did talk to each other. They weren't supposed to tell anybody. I wonder if that included the, themselves. They, we weren't supposed to. Were they supposed to talk about it? Or is it other people? Well, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. They were allowed to talk to each other, but nobody else. So they talked. It's very interesting to me that very soon, guess what's going to happen? You know what's the debate next week or two weeks from now? Or three weeks from now? Whichever one. The debate is, is who's the greatest in the kingdom? I saw Jesus in his glory. You think they thought much of themselves after seeing the glory of Christ? I hope not. I could see that happening though, couldn't you? What did did Paul say when he saw a glimpse of the glory? God gave me a, a thorn in the flesh to keep me from exalting myself. You see glory? Whoa, I'm going to glory. This is great. It's almost this whole idea of, am I a saint or a sinner? If you think too much that you're a saint, you're bound to be a, a sinner. They knew Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yet we see that Jesus asked a question. It was asked a question by those three disciples as he goes down. He says, and it says, And his disciples... And as the disciples asked him, "When? why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Let me ask you a question. This is a trick question I want to see. Everybody has to answer. You ready? Everybody has to answer. And you have to raise your hand high. So hopefully you're paying attention. You ready? Has Elijah come? If Elijah's come, everybody raise your hand. Raise your hand high if you believe that. Raise it high. Okay, put it down. Has Elijah come? If you say no, I want you to raise your hand. No. Okay, that shows a little bit there. Some of you goobers raised your hand twice. (laughs) That's actually the right answer. You should have raised your hand twice. You should have raised your hand twice. What? Yes. You should have raised your hand twice because guess what? Elijah has come. And Elijah is coming. How do I know? Look at the passage. Look at the passage. First of all, where's this from? Where's Elijah's ministry? Why would the disciples even think that Elijah's coming? Why would they think? Well, because Malachi 4, 5, and 6, that Mark's going to preach on tonight in the providence of the Lord. I'm preaching on the same concepts as Mark is preaching. He's preaching in the Old Testament. I'm preaching in this. It says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Has that happened? Yes and no. Really? Really? Yes and no. You can see why the disciples would ask it. Why did they ask, by the way, about Elijah? They just saw him. They just saw him on the mountain. And when they saw him on the mountain, who was there with him? Moses and Jesus. How did they know it was Elijah? No idea, but they knew. If they saw Elijah and they knew he was Elijah, who did they also know he wasn't? John the Baptist. Do you understand that John and James, guess where they started their ministry? With John the Baptist. John and James, they were there. And Jesus says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what's John and James do? Bye, John. I'm out of here. I'm going with that guy. That's basically what happens. But do you think they knew what John the Baptist looked like? Oh, yeah, they were pretty clear. And who did they see on the mountain? Elijah. Wait, 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 wait. Jesus told us in Matthew 11 that in some way John the Baptist is Elijah. But John told us that he wasn't Elijah in John chapter 1. So is he Elijah or isn't he Elijah? Wait. Jesus walking down from the mountain. Hey! I thought uh, I thought Elijah was coming. Is Elijah coming or not? And look what Jesus says. And he answered and said to them, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. Which one is it? Yes. Yes. The first part is looking to the great and terrible day before the land. It says Elijah is coming. What is that? Present tense. Present tense. And will restore. What is that? Future tense. When, where was, where was John the Baptist at this moment, beloved? Dead. He had his head cut off already. Okay? is coming. If John the Baptist is Elijah and he's going to restore, then we got a problem, don't we? So is Malachi 4, 5, and 6 happened yet? Mm, Nope. Not fully. Did Elijah come in the spirit and the power of, or did uh, John the Baptist come in the spirit and power of Elijah? Yes. Yes. Was he pointing them to return to their father to get right with God before the Messiah comes? Yes. Did he do the ministry of Elijah? Yes. But he was a foretaste of the final time when Elijah will come. And I think that's Revelation chapter 11. The witnesses, maybe one of them is Elijah. Pointing to the restoration of Israel at the end. I think that day of the great and terrible day is coming. But I don't think the disciples fully got it all, did they? They got that he was talking about in the second half, but I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. They got the second half, didn't they? Why did they get the second half? Well, because they knew John had died. They knew that Jesus had already told them that he was like him. He was associated with him. But what was the problem? It all goes back to the same thing. Oh, this is so good. This is so good. This is so good. The disciples didn't fully grasp suffering and glory. They didn't get it. They didn't fully grasp suffering and glory. They couldn't grasp it. They wanted Malachi 4 and 5, restore it, that the land will not be cursed. They wanted the glory before and without suffering. So they got the part, but what does Jesus say? He says, even John the Baptist, in effect, he says, even John the Baptist had to do what first? suffer because they did whatever they pleased to him and then what do they close he closes with so also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands are y'all getting this everybody get it oh beloved I see myself in the disciples so much do y'all do you how many of you, how many of you want your prosperity now? I just want to be so I want I want to be completely debt free. I want to just have everything settled, everything be at peace, no problems. I want, I want this church to be packed, the offerings to be sky high, building buildings everywhere. I just, oh, yeah, our next-door neighbor, you know, he, he built himself a basketball court. You know why? Because Pastor Mike wanted a basketball court. <laughs> he built him one right next door. Beloved, I don't need prosperity. I need my sin killed daily. I need my flesh mortified. I need a Savior. And you do too. But don't we live in the very place that goes contrary to this? But we don't need what our flesh wants. We need a full understanding of the glory and the suffering of our Savior who died in our place, rose from the dead, and one day will return. Yep, it seems as though you've heard the same message again. How do we apply this to our lives? My question to you is, is, do you see that that's your greatest need? Do you see that your greatest need is not what your bank account has? It's not how big your property is. It's not how good your boss treats you. It's not how good your kids treat you. It's not how many friends you have. It's not whether you're married or single. It's not whether you have two kids, three kids, six kids, eight kids, or no kids. It's not whether your wife loves you or not. It's not whether you have the best fellowship in a church even. Your greatest need is Christ Jesus the Lord. I'm thankful that he suffered first because otherwise we would not be going to glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ Jesus our Lord. The one who came into the world to die for sinners, that's us. God, forgive us for our lack of faith. God, forgive us for prioritizing the things of the world over the glory to come. God, forgive us for the dead man that we carry around. These bodies of death. Thank you, Father, for Christ Jesus. Thank you for his righteousness credited to our account. We are with the psalmist in Psalm 119. We are like sheep that are lost in need of a shepherd. Seek us, Lord. Seek us. For we know your law. We know your righteous standard is far above anything we could achieve. We praise you and thank you for the resurrected Savior who we will share in glory with one day. We pray this in his name. Amen.